Welcome. You are listening to a recording provided for the use of those who are blind and or print impaired. Materials or items read on Airs LA are the copyrighted property of the original authors and publishers. No unauthorized use or duplication is permitted. Welcome to episode 189 of Green and Growing in the Garden, the weekly gardening show for the Los Angeles Radio Reading Service. I'm Hugh Ralston, your host and producer, and I look forward to sharing with you over the next 40 minutes updates to our local garden scene and recent articles about gardens, plants, and designers, both in California and around the world. Gardens are in my DNA. I was raised in a family of gardeners, and my grandparents and mother handed down a love of flowers, of orchids, and of roses, among many other gifts. I have been an inveterate gardener for years. From that first six-pack of marigolds I bought at Home Depot in suburban Connecticut to laying out birthday rose gardens, planting fruit trees, and rescuing overgrown and underloved gardens, as well as building my own garden library with books from classic design texts to glossy coffee table indulgences. I've spent years getting to know California's Mediterranean garden landscapes, plants, and climate, even as I have fallen for English and continental garden design traditions, grown fond of the particularities and peculiarities of succulents, which do so well in our climate, and learned to love and respect the quiet power of a Japanese garden. I have been active in local garden societies and visited botanical gardens around the world, believing not only in the benefits of gardening itself, but of being in the garden and of being charmed by that special alchemy of plants, climate, soil, design, place, and space. Gardens are a place where we can become more alive and more connected with the world we share with others. And as the good book reminds us, it all began in a garden. Welcome to this week's show. We start with the most recent article in the LA Times plant series, this one by Jeanette Marantos, published on the 31st of January. Composting is now mandatory in LA. Here's how to reap rewards beyond the green bin. It took a year past the state deadline, but mandatory curbside composting has finally arrived in the city of Los Angeles. As of January 16th, residents are now required to toss their chicken bones, veggie scraps, and other food waste into their green bins instead of their non-recyclable garbage destined for the landfill. It's not really a major issue. You have to scrap your food waste into some receptacle, right? Nearly 40 to 50% of the trash we collect curbside is compostable. Michael Martinez, founder of LA Compost, said last year when the law was enacted, we need to stop seeing food waste as trash and redefine our vocabulary to see it as a resource, something that needs to be transformed and reinvested back into the soil. The point of the law is to remove organic waste from our landfills to reduce methane emissions and slow the need for new places to dump our waste. Senate Bill 1383, passed in 2016, requires cities to divert 75% of their organic waste in landfills by 2025. Separating food waste from garbage became mandatory statewide on January 1, 2022 although several jurisdictions, including Los Angeles, delayed implementation to get their program and composting facilities up and running. 
You aren't required to personally make compost. All you have to do is to separate your food waste. Cities and other jurisdictions will take it from there. But honestly, if you have a garden or a yard or even potted plants, making compost is a pretty easy and inexpensive way to enrich the compacted, depleted soils around our homes and public areas. It adds nutrients, attracts beneficial microbes, and, perhaps most important, helps create a loamy soil that more easily absorbs and retains the water it receives. I'm a long-time composter, so these days I have four waste receptacles in my kitchen, one each for recycling, landfill garbage, food waste for my compost pile, and a separate one for food waste I don't want in my compost, like cheese and meat scraps. My home compost pile doesn't get hot enough to kill any possible pathogens created by rotting meat and dairy products, so I leave the composting of those items to industrial strength composting centers. Like many other jurisdictions in California, Los Angeles is providing residents with their own free kitchen pails to hold their food waste before they take it to their larger green bins outside. Although you have to make an appointment to pick up your pail at one of several distribution centers in the city. You don't have to use the city-provided containers, however. You can invest in a handsome metal one, like the one featured in our 2022 holiday gift guide for the eco-conscious, or use a recycled plastic tub, or even an old bowl, although you'll probably want to empty your container more often if it doesn't have a lid. Honestly, it's not that hard to make a compost pile, especially if you stick to eggshells, coffee grinds, and plant waste as I do. There are plenty of how-to guides online and tons of free classes and workshops in February and beyond. Here's a sampling. LA Sanitation offers free composting workshops almost every Saturday morning at one of its four locations, where city residents can pick up compost bins and worm bins for the discounted price of $20 each, more for non-residents. Los Angeles County Public Works also offers free composting workshops most Saturdays through its Smart Gardening Program. In February, there are classes on February 4th in West Covina, February 11th in Walnut, and February 18th in Burbank. Backyard compost bins, $40, and worm compost bins and African red worms, Icenia fetida, $65, can be purchased at the end of each workshop. Long Beach's Environmental Services Bureau offers free composting workshops at least once a month, including February 25th. Sustainable Little Tokyo sponsors workshops in using a pickling method known as bokashi to compost food waste in buckets under your sink. Its next Hero Bokashi Club workshop is February 11th. The workshop is free, but the necessary equipment and supplies cost $25. LA Compost has more than 34 community compost hubs and drop-off sites around Los Angeles, including several farmer's markets where people can drop off food waste and volunteer and get hands-on composting lessons. The organization also offers compost workshops throughout the year. Here are some other garden and plant-related activities in February. They include the following. February 1-4, Theodore Payne Foundation Winter Plant Sale, 8.30 a.m. to 4.30 p.m. at 10,459 Tuxford Street in Sun Valley. Members receive a 15% discount, and non-members receive a 10% discount on all plants, seeds, and Theodore Payne Foundation gear. Admission is free, but reservations for cars are required because of limited parking spaces. Eventbrite.com. 
February 2nd, Gardening for Butterflies, a free class from 1 to 2 p.m. at the Norman P. Murray Senior Center, 24,932 Veterans Way in Mission Viejo, presented by the UC Cooperative Extension Master Gardeners of Orange County. The course discusses types of butterflies in our region, the plants they need, and examples of native plants and other nectar plants that attract them. The class is free, but registration is required. mgorange.ucanr. On February 3rd, Santa Monica Mountains Fund Restoration in the Yerba Mansa Meadow at Rancho Sierra Vista in Newberry Park from 9 a.m. to noon. Volunteers age 5 and older will help plant hundreds of native plants grown from locally collected seed. Participants should bring water, sunscreen, and a sun hat and wear hiking attire, closed-toe shoes, pants, and long-sleeve shirts. Gloves and tools will be provided. Admission is free, but reservations are required. Eventbrite.com. On February 4, How to Plant Tomatoes from Seeds, a free class taught by the UC Cooperative Extension Master Gardeners of Orange County, 10 to 11 a.m. at the Orange County Great Park Farm and Food Lab, 8000 Great Park Boulevard in Irvine. Learn how to plant tomatoes from seed and transplant and care for the seedlings. The website is mgorange.ucanr.edu. February 4th and 11th, the Ventura Land Trust cleanup from recent flood damage, 9 a.m. to 1 p.m. at the Big Rock Preserve on February 4th and the Willoughby Preserve on February 11th. Participants must sign a liability release waiver and RSVP online. Volunteers will be asked to remove inorganic material from the preserves, collect invasive arundo grass, and begin to restore the preserve's trails. Volunteers will get more details upon registration at VenturaLandTrust.org. February 9th, prioritizing California native plants for butterfly and moth preservation at the Southern California Horticultural Society meeting from 7 to 10 p.m. at the Friendship Auditorium, 3201 Riverside Drive in Griffith Park. Chris Cosma, a graduate student at UC Riverside's Evolution, Ecology, and Orgasinimal Biology Department, will discuss his research into how climate change is affecting moths and their interactions with native plants in California. His talk will also include information about monarchs and other butterflies. Doors open at 7 p.m. for announcements and a plant forum. Program begins at 7.30. Admission is $5. Members enter free. S-O-C-L-H-O-R-T dot org. February 11th, Pot It Like It's Hot, Hands-On Workshop. 11 a.m. to 1 p.m. at Fly Plant, 1801 East 7th Street in downtown L.A. Learn when plants are ready to be repotted, what kind of soil mix to use, and how to properly repot, feed, and care for plants. Tickets start at... $50 and include admission to the workshop, a 4-inch plant and a 5-inch pot of your choice, organic soil mix, complimentary mimosas, and snacks. Eventbrite.com. Arlington Garden Weekend Workshop, also on February 11th, 9 a.m. to noon at 275 Arlington Drive, Pasadena. Includes instruction in regenerative gardening techniques while volunteers help ready the Arlington Garden for the Theodore Payne Foundation Native Plant Garden Tour in April. Free but participants are asked to register online, eventbrite.com. On February 12th, the South Coast Cactus and Succulent Society meeting features a talk about the renovation of the Huntington Library, Art Museums, and Botanical Gardens, Desert Gardens from curator John Traeger, 1 to 4 p.m. at the South Coast Botanic Garden, 
26,300 Crenshaw Boulevard and Rolling Hills Estates. Admission is free for members and their guests. SouthCoastCSS.org, all one word. On February 13th, Gabe Verdusco, the man who hunts invasive beetles threatening SoCal's urban trees, is the speaker at the Los Angeles Garden Club meeting, 9.15 a.m. to 12.45 p.m. at the Griffith Park Visitors Center Auditorium, 4730 Crystal Springs Drive in Griffith Park. Verdusco will discuss his adventures in searching for beetle infestations and offer tips about how to spot infestations and protect trees from these tiny little beetles. Los Angeles Garden Club, one word, dot Wix site, W-I-X-S-I-T-E, dot com. On February 18th, Mushrooms of Southern California Walk with Jess Starwood, forager, chef, and author of Mushroom Wanderland, a forager's guide to finding, identifying, and using more than 25 wild fungi. That's 9 a.m. to 3 p.m. The day starts with a walk through the Ojai Meadows Preserve to look for and identify mushrooms, and then a demonstration about cooking wild foods, plus other hands-on activities. Admission is $145. Register online at herbwalksoneword.com. Also on February 18th, the Los Angeles Seed Spring Swap Compost and Gardening Workshop, noon to 4 p.m., sponsored by The Plant Plug and Project 43 Team Post Centers at 6841 Crenshaw Boulevard in Hyde Park. The workshop includes a mini seed library of three packs of seed, plant history, care tips, and tutorials in composting and seed extraction. Tickets are required for admission. They're $20 each, or $8 for people who have seeds to share. Children 13 and younger enter free. Eventbrite.com. February 18th through March 11th, a three-part gardening series with botanist Terry Huang, director of Living Collections, Learning, and Engagement at South Coast Botanic Garden at the Theodore Payne Foundation Nursery, 9 a.m. to noon on February 18th, 25th, and March 11th. The classes are geared toward beginning gardeners who want to gain practical knowledge and theoretical knowledge about plants and gardening. Sessions will include learning about different seed treatment, hands-on work in the Theodore Payne Gardens, and gardening maintenance. Admission is $420, $350 for Foundation members. Again, eventbrite.com. February 24th and 25th, Tomato Mania 2023 kickoff sale at the El Cajon Water Conservation Garden, 12,122 Cuyamaca College Drive West in El Cajon from 9 a.m. to 3 p.m. This is the first of Tomato Mania's 11 roving pop-up sales throughout Southern California from late February into April. The annual sales typically include about 200 varieties of tomatoes and 100 varieties of peppers grown by local farmers for Tomato Mania owner Scott Dager. Venues in Los Angeles, Orange, and Ventura counties are scheduled for March and April. TomatoManiaOneWord.com is the website. February 25 and 6, Tomato Mania Sale at Mission Hills Nursery, 1525 Fort Stockton Drive in San Diego from 8 a.m. to 5 p.m., the second of Tomato Mania's 11 roving pop-up sales throughout Southern California from late February into April. The website is tomatomania.com. 
February 27th, Mini Cats, Delightful Catalayas in Miniature, is the topic for the South Coast Orchid Society of Long Beach's meeting 7 to 9 p.m. at the Whaley Park Community Center, 5620 East Atherton Street in Long Beach. Longtime orchid grower and judge Peter Lynn will discuss his work in creating many hybrid Catalea orchids. Admission is free. The website is southcoastorchidsociety.com. That's one word. And February 28th, a tomato talk at the Monrovia Garden Club, 7 p.m. at the First Presbyterian Church, 101 East Foothill Boulevard in Monrovia. Master Gardener Judy Gomez talks about growing tomatoes. The club's social time begins at 6.30. Admission is free. Facebook.com slash groups slash Monrovia Garden Club, one word, is the website. And that's our garden calendar for the month of February and an article about now Mandatory Composting, written by Jeanette Marantos and published on January 31st in the Los Angeles Times. We turn next to two columns by Robin Lane Fox, published in the Financial Times in their garden section. The first was published on the 20th of January, Purple Peas and Other Cutting-Edge Veg to Grow in the Garden. This month has a slick new name, Veganuary. After a new year of indulgence, it is a nickname with traction. It will pull me into a brief vegetarian interlude. I will not give up eggs, and I am certainly not giving up chocolate. Like many of you, I am scaling back on post-Christmas meat, at least until the inflated price of pheasants drops below 10 pounds a brace. Can the garden help? In 2022, vegetable gardens were roasted to death. July was very hot, and watering was forbidden in August. Spinach and peas were ruined, and celeriac never put on weight. I was left with ceaseless cucumbers and ever-cropping courgettes. The cucumbers were too big and mushy, and I ran out of ideas for using courgettes. Ideas for them are less of a problem now that I have been given Yotam Ottolenghi's recipe book, Plenty More. It sets a challenging standard. However, will I find, let alone grow, the exotica he prescribes? What is Zahatar when it is at home? Is frike something we can raise from seed? He shows a color picture of courgette baba ganoush, which strikes me as an epigraph for last year's harvest. The courgettes have been roasted until they wrinkle and have been mixed with what looks like mid-December's snowfall. The snowy coating is goat's yogurt. The result, Ottolenghi says, looks rather like a volcanic eruption in the best possible sense. Is there one? Under the volcano, I will vary this year's courgettes by choosing new varieties. Part of the fun of growing vegetables is sowing their seeds, usually with rapid results. Here are four good sources, each with a fascinating list. Courgettes and cucumbers to the fore. Thompson & Morgan, thompson-morgan.com, have an ever-improving website whose varieties are ever-improving too. It combines new arrivals from breeders and growers with brief practical advice on how and when to germinate them. This year, we can even try purple magnolia, a new pea from Oregon with dark purple pods. The peas inside them are green, but the color contrast looks chic in a dish. 
D.T. Brown is another experienced source of the new and the familiar dtbrownseeds.co.uk, but like many U.K. nurserymen, they no longer supply to Europe and Northern Ireland, as the post-Brexit rules are a deterrent. Their new variety of celeriac, neon, sounds promising, as it crops early and its flesh stays white when cooked. Celeriac seed can be sown in early April for outdoor planting in late May. It then needs plenty of regular water if it is to build up an edible root like a croquet ball. Cut back its leafy top growth in order to promote a big root below ground. In East Somerset, Pennard Plants, motto Growing the Dream, are top suppliers of seed potatoes, but also offer seeds of much else, reasonably priced. Their list is a potato fancier's happy hunting ground. In Harrow, Franchi has a distinctive spin, too. It is a fine source of old varieties of vegetable and many Italian specialties. Seeds of Italy, one word, dot com. The vegetable markets in many Italian towns are enviably good compared with Britain's. I cannot resist varieties with Italian names, even if they struggle in my care. This year, Franchi are offering an alluring Italian courgette, Bianca di Trieste. It has very pale flesh, nearly white, and will make a welcome change from the usual green. Bianca, here I come. Yellow-skinned courgettes are also good because they are less watery and mushy when cooked. Thompson and Morgan are introducing yellow lingodor, which bears masses of yellow fruits and has a long season. As a contrast, I cannot resist their dark green courgette called Twitter, especially after the news around its namesake. This Twitter thrives on manure and is good when paired with pot marigolds. They keep off predators. Twitter courgettes are easy to stuff. To cover all bases, I will also grow Sure Thing, a courgette that self-pollinates and crops well in unsunny summers. Seeds of all these varieties should be ordered now and sown under glass in April, preferably in a warm greenhouse, certainly not directly outdoors. Any old pot will suffice as a seed bed, even an empty pot of goat's yogurt, especially if a plastic bag is fixed over it to heighten the temperature inside. Courgette seeds are big and flat, but they should be planted vertically into the soil, like vinyl records arranged in a rack. They will sprout within 12 days, if not too cold. They can then be transplanted, one into a three-inch pot, and in late May, put into open ground. Courgette plants straggle to a width of about three feet, making them bad choices for a window box. Potatoes might seem no better, but the trick here is to grow them in bags. Pennard Plants sells two handled potato bags for £4.50 each, reusable alternatives to compost bags punched with a hole to allow drainage. Put about six inches of rich compost into the bag and then set in two or three seed potatoes, depending on the bag's diameter. Add about three more inches of soil on top and then add more as the green shoots start to show, bringing the soil up to the level of the bag's top. The result can be lifted onto a sunny balcony, and in 10 to 12 weeks, the potatoes can be evacuated. The BBC's Gardener's World has posted a video for fans of Monty Don, in which, on his birthday, he advances to excavate potatoes from two bags, one started under glass, one grown outdoors. The crop is bigger in the first one, a happy return for Monty, who cuts off the top growth and then empties each bag successfully. Gardening is never easier. 
I have picked on seed potatoes because they need to be ordered now. All of them have to be started off indoors, beginning with the early varieties in early February. Their tubers should be set on edge in an empty egg box, one in each egg space, and then stood in a cool, airy place indoors. This easy care is called chitting. After four to six weeks, the tubers will show little shoots, as they sometimes do when overlooked in a larder. When these shoots are about an inch long, the tubers are ready to be planted in a bag, shoots uppermost, covered with that layer of rich compost. Early potatoes are excellent for bag planting, none better than Charlotte, a supermarket favorite. Freshly picked Charlottes are worth all the cost and effort, but Pennard sells many other winners never seen in supermarkets, including a Scottish variety, Salad Blue, which has dark violet blue flesh. They also offer the medal-winning early Red Duke of York. I cannot resist this one either, after recent items in the Royal News. A red-flushed Duke of York has flurry flesh and is quite unsuited to a pizza. Potatoes kickstart the veggie season. Carrots, beans, onions, and spinach then join in, needing to be sown or planted in March to April. Space out your sowing and chitting across several weeks in order to extend the eventual cropping. Leap into veganary and then stagger the rest of the season. An article by Robin Lane Fox, published on January 20th in the Financial Times, Purple Peas and Other Cutting-Edge Veg to Grow in the Garden. And in his next column, published on the 27th of January, also in the Financial Times, Robin Lane Fox shares some design tips, how to give structure to a garden. Gardens do not simply emerge, they must be shaped in terms of spacing, soil, height, and color. Gardens have to be shaped and guided. What are the main mistakes we make with them? They cannot be left to emerge. Space does not become a garden if it is left alone. During the lockdowns, much was heard about wilding, no mowing, and waiting to see what would appear. Long-lost orchids and violets were supposedly longing to burst into flower beneath our lawns. Most of us would have been graced with nettles, ground elder, and bindweed if we had given up gardening. Here is some basic advice for shapers and guiders. It's based on years of trial and error. It will put you on a path whose direction will then develop as you go. Set off on it with these four aspects in mind. Spacing, soil, height, and color. The major mistake we all make shows no sign of abating. We plant plants too closely together. Planners and designers have accustomed us to trees in clusters, hedging plants jammed up continuously, and borders begun with far too many plants. Clients and customers now expect the level of density that they see around them. It takes a nerve to lay out a border with only three to five plants to a square yard. The soaring cost of plants may bring us back to reality. Three to five was the rule of thumb 50 years ago. It is still valid. Hedging plants should be spaced at one per yard, minimum, unless you're planting low edging. Taller, bigger specimens may look more encouraging, but after five years, they are no faster or thicker. They merely cost more. Public plantings of trees are 
a travesty. In go those birches and native species spaced about a yard apart, a density which is unsustainable. This mass planting used to be defended as a way of deterring vandals. Single trees were supposed to be more at risk. Now, mass cramming satisfies targets. A local authority can rest assured that it has planted thousands of trees, capturing carbon for Cumbria, even though most of them will die, and many of the others will have to be thinned out. Gardeners are not governed by target numbers. Always check out a tree or shrub's predicted width after 15 years of life then space them. If you pack in lilacs at a spacing of one per yard, you're wasting time and money. Pruning is not the answer. The lilacs will respond to it with yet more green growth and no flowers. Internet searches under a shrub or tree's name are one guide to size and spread, but I rely on the Hillier Manual of Trees and Shrubs, updated in 2019 by the expert Roy Lancaster. It began as a catalog of trees and shrubs grown by our greatest nursery and its guiding genius, Harold Hillier, in Hampshire. This new edition has 1,500 more entries. It is an authoritative guide to plants' span. Ceanothus, magnolias, and witch hazels are some of the many shrubs which should not collide. Overplanting is not easy to rectify. Removal of excess shrubs is a bother and has a way of leaving the remainers in the wrong place. Size it, space it, sort it when you first plant. The result is far cheaper. If a shrub is listed in Hillier's manual as spreading eight feet across, it will not give you a quicker effect if it is planted only three feet from its neighbor. It will give you a tangle and few, if any, flowers. Soil, meanwhile, teaches hard lessons. If you want to grow vegetables, you are almost always better off if you make raised beds edged with timber at least a foot above your existing soil's level. Fork over the existing soil, break it up, and then smother it with a rich compost, probably bought in bags, to raise the soil to the level of the timber around it. On favored fertile soils, you need not raise and import, but most of us have soil that is unfavored. If you visit Kew Gardens, look for the raised beds in the new vegetable garden and use them as blueprints for your own. They are living proof that much can be cropped in small, concentrated spaces. As for flower beds, I often wish I had had all my stony, poor soil removed by a mechanical digger and replaced with first-class topsoil before I planted anything. I have improved parts of it and still dream of that digger. But gardens made of imported topsoil become homogenous, one just like another. Challenged by stony soil, I have not just learnt patience. I have learned to grow plants I would not otherwise have chosen and grew. My advice, therefore, is to spend time and money on improving and enriching most of your flower beds, but to leave a bit of the post-Eden torment in one or two beds to see what you can do with it. Elsewhere, whatever you plant will respond to the time and money you spend on soil for it. A plant in a pot is only part of the story. Gardening begins when you prepare a good home for it. It's amazing how much quicker a plant will grow in really good soil. Do not assume cruel Mother Nature has already given you it. I have warned about span and spread. I must alert you to the upper dimension, height. Properly planned, it gives a garden fine lines, contrast in a sense of truly being a garden, not a muddle. The vertical line is so effective, especially in planned flower borders. Delphiniums, foxgloves, biennial salvia, turkestanica, 
verbascums and not-so-red-hot pokers vary the ground line of a border and draw the eye upward to them as points of emphasis. In wide borders, tall frames for clematis, spaced at intervals, give sudden canopies of greenery which break up the flatter volume of surrounding border plants. One place to see such frames at their best is the wide double border in the Hillier Gardens near Romsey in Hampshire. The border is only a few years old, an encouragement to us all. What about color? In borders, I go for clear colors, scarlet and blue, not those poor substitutes, purple-red and purple-blue. In places, I limit beds not to one color only, but to two or three dominant ones, blue and yellow with silver leaves perhaps, or pink, pale blue and white, or red and white, what others nicknamed blood and bandages. I avoid purple rose or rose magenta, frequent colors in border plants. I also remember how the impact varies from season to season. Who minds about a clashing profusion of color in springtime? It is a joy after a drab winter. Within these main color lines, I have become more relaxed. The changing climate is helping more than books on border planning realize. Those subtle gradations from red to orange to pale yellow were planned when May was still May, not June in acceleration. Carefully matched neighbors now flower out of season and miss one another. Do not be too exact in your color plans. The weather will frustrate them. That is a lesson to learn before you shape and guide anything. Most recent column by Robin Lane Fox, published in the Financial Times of London on the 27th of January. How to give structure, how to give structure to a garden. We close this week with an article by Stephen Anderson, published on Saturday, January 21st in the Times of London, How to Get the Best Out of Helibores, sometimes referred to as Christmas Rose or Lenten Rose. Supermarket doorways are awash with helibores for sale at this time of year. Pinks and whites and creams and yellows and blacks, doubles, spotted, you name it. They have become one of Britain's most popular flowers, and not least because they are so long flowering and trouble-free. The only downside is the ubiquity and reliability of these hybrid helibores tend to beguile us into thinking that all helibores have the same habit and prefer the same conditions. Not so. And there are some wonderful helibores that grow very differently from the supermarket hybrids. So here's an easy guide to three types. Orientalis hybrids. These are the supermarket helibores in all their dazzling variety. 25 years ago, you would have paid a fortune for them. And even today, serious helibore Chasers pay remarkable amounts for the subtlest, classiest new forms from specialist nurseries like Ashwood, ashwoodnurseries.com. All the cheap ones outside discount stores are raised from seed, so unless you buy them in flower, the color, spotting, and doubleness, or otherwise, may come as a pleasant surprise. You will pay more for selected name forms of established high quality, and these will have been propagated by division. This hybrid race of evergreen perennial helibores is ridiculously tough. Produced by crossing a handful of species, they offer a plant which lives for decades on next to no attention. Flowers for months in winter, spring, unsupported, and will do so not only in shade, but once established in poor dry shade. They even suppress weeds within the ambit of their hungry, shallow roots and dense foliage. Cut off the flower stems in late summer to stop them flowering, 
themselves to a standfill, and, if they offend you, last year's leaves may be cut away each spring just before flowering. Don't do them any sooner, or you starve the plant of nourishment. The variety of flower form lends itself to many situations. Wild gardens look right with self-seeding colonies of single whites and pale yellows down the primrose path. Sophisticated paved London courtyards make sense for wine-red or slate-gray doubles that would be almost invisible in the rough and tumble of the open garden. Heliboris niger, a smaller, less vigorous, and white-flowered plant, staple of Christmas artwork, can be forced under a cloche to produce flowers for the Christmas table. Some clones almost manage to flower in time without forcing, if you're lucky. All the potted ones in the shops during December have come from greenhouses. Actually, the plant isn't half as reliable as those hybrids. If you just wanted a nice white helibore, this wouldn't be the place to start. The Christmas rose is softer-leaved than the Heliborus orientalis hybrids, and the curly stem foliage becomes torn and blown about by flowering time. It never makes that dense evergreen weed-suppressing skirt. The flower stems are softer, too, and more prone to slug damage. Yes, Christmas roses are softer, kinder, gentler, but worth it? Up to you. What they do need is dappled shade and a soil that is reasonably moist and not too light. New plants that have been grown in very fibrous, airy composts seem to suffer all too easily from drought after planting out in shady, potentially dry places. Watch it. And Corsican or holly-leaved Helibor. Heliborus argutifolius, formerly Heliborus corsicus, may only be green-flowered, but it is far larger and structurally by far the most dramatic. If it only looked as good as a young plant in the usual 9-centimeter pot as it does after five years in the ground, you'd see it everywhere. Every year it throws up a new crop of succulent 70-centimeter bamboo-like stems, atop which in the following spring emerge candy floss size clusters of lime and apple green flowers until the plant looks more like a bush than a herbaceous plant. If you grow it too richly, the stems will indeed become too soft and top-heavy and may require support. You need to find a position that offers bright light or even full sun and soil that is dryish in summer so the growth will not be too lush. The flower heads last for months and are cut down in late season as the new crop takes over. By leaving the occasional stem to set and drop seed, new seedlings will happily appear. That's taken from an article by Stephen Anderson published on the 21st of January in the Times of London, How to Get the Best Out of Helibors. That wraps up this edition 189 of Green and Growing in the Garden, the weekly gardening program produced for the Los Angeles Radio Reading Service. Please send us your comments at www.lars.org, L-A-R-R-S, or email us at one word, LA Radio Reading at gmail.com. Give us suggestions of gardens or stories to follow, your thoughts on a favorite story you heard, or what you think about the broadcast itself. Gardens are not just plant, soil, and irrigation. They speak to us of the world around us, even as we try to create order and structure. They connect us to our landscape and to the cycles of nature. They teach us patience, stewardship, and fortitude. They offer possibilities of beauty and of persistence, sometimes even of transcendence. And they open our senses to both the heart and the soul, to being alive, to being connected with other gardeners, other gardens, other places, and other times. 
whether in a container or in pots on a balcony in the city, in a defined, dedicated garden area, or planted around a suburban house, or in space surrounded by trees, landscape, and open sky. Gardens are precious indeed, no matter where they are. I'm Hugh Ralston, your host. Thanks for joining us. Until the next time.